Chapter 20, A History of California, the American Period, by Robert Glass Cleland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 20, San Francisco the Boisterous. Many cities in the United States boast a more ancient lineage than that of San Francisco, but none can look back to a more vigorous, boisterous, or interesting youth. In 1835, Captain W. A. Richardson laid the foundation for the modern San Francisco by erecting a rude building on the beach known as Yerba Buena. The next year, Jacob P. Lease built a comfortable frame house near the same site. As time went, Lease added a store and made the place something of a trading center for ships taking on wood and water across the bay at Sausalito. In 1841, however, Lease sold his property to the Hudson's Bay Company, which thereafter, for four or five years, became the chief factor in the commercial life of the little village. With the American occupation, Yerba Buena rapidly began to increase its scant population, and by the spring of 1848 could boast nearly 900 inhabitants. Telegraph, Rincon, and Russian Hills marked the town's western boundary and the narrow plain on which its adobe and frame buildings stood merged into the waterfront where Battery and First Streets now touch market. By this time, the town had changed its name from Yerba Buena to San Francisco, established a number of newspapers, opened a public school, and become somewhat of a commercial rival to Monterey. The first rush to the mining regions, however, brought this promising growth to a sudden end, for like all other towns of California, the would-be metropolis was virtually deserted by its inhabitants during the first few months of the gold excitement. Stores were closed, labor became almost unobtainable, and real estate depreciated woefully in value. But before the years closed, prosperity and population came back with a rush like that of the tide in the Bay of Fundy. Immigrant ships began to dump hundreds of passengers upon the shore. Tons of merchandise were piled in the streets. Men were clamoring for places to eat and sleep, and there were eager, hurrying, insistent crowds where all before had been empty streets or unoccupied beach. Never since the days of Aladdin and his wonderful lamp did a city arise so full of activity and life in so short a time. In this sudden growth, naturally enough, beauty and comfort for a long time found little place, the dwellings were chiefly of canvas or rough lumber, affording only the flimsiest of shelter and utterly devoid of attractive qualities. They straggled from waterfront to hillside, for a time paying but little attention to the street lines marked out by official survey, or grouped themselves in a compact, disorderly mass behind the shelter of the sand hills in the area now bounded by First, Second, Market, and Mission Streets, in what was then known as Happy Valley. In summer, the streets were dusty, windswept, and rendered almost impassable by the boxes and bales of merchandise whose owners had no other place of storage. In winter, especially that of 1849 and 1850, the dust became a sea of mud in which, incredible as it may seem, animals not infrequently disappeared from sight, and even drunken men were known to have died of suffocation. At the corner of Clay and Kearney Streets, so it is said, the mud became so serious that someone posted a warning which read, 
This street is impassable, not even jackassable. W. T. Sherman also recounts in his memoirs that he was afraid to ride down Montgomery Street after a rain because of the danger of being drowned in the mud and water if his horse should stumble. Almost every race and costume could be met with in the shops or gambling places of the new metropolis, for even as early as 1849 the cosmopolitan character of the city's population had become firmly established. Moor, Chinaman, Kanaka, Malay, Mexican, as well as immigrants from all the European countries, touched elbows with Americans from every state in the Union. In the medley of strange dress which resulted from this variety of race, the flannel shirt, soft hat, and high boots of the miner easily predominated. Top hats, frock coats, jewelry, and other marks of a more elegant civilization were also much affected by certain types. And thus it happened that sameness of dress was as foreign to those early days as monotony of life. In San Francisco, as well as in the mining regions, democracy flourished on every hand. Men sloughed off their class distinctions as instinctively as a snake sheds its skin. Work was honorable, and a man standing was not affected by his occupation so long as he remained reasonably honest. The term menial disappeared from speech, and those who had once been accustomed to servants now did their own cooking and mending, carried their own trunks, worked with pickaxe and shovel, or drove mule teams for employers who had not long since been day laborers in the eastern states. The business life of this period can scarcely be described. It both partook of the characteristics of the people and helped in no small way to intensify their predominant traits. Speculation, open-handedness, startling success or equally swift failure, hurry, rush, and disregard of caution were its chief features. Two streams flowing through the city constantly enriched its economic life and day by day added to its amazing wealth. Every shipload and overland party of immigrants brought a new demand for food, lodging, drink, and mining equipment to the San Francisco merchants. Of even more importance was the never-failing influx of miners returning from the Sierra with the precious dust upon which the whole business life of the city depended. Whether bound for home with his pile or merely seeking a brief relaxation at the city's flesh pots, the average miner spent his money generously and without much regard for what he got in return. Small change was seldom requested. Few articles could be had for less than fifty cents. Prices were almost never challenged. Higgling was a lost art. Commodity prices in the city were normally about the same as at the mines themselves. But when the market became glutted through excessive importations, or when goods could not be shipped to the mountains because of impassable roads, violent fluctuations made the merchants' profits as uncertain as the miners' luck. Flour, which sold on December 1, 1848, for $27 a barrel, within two weeks had fallen to 12 or $15. Beef and pork dropped at times with even greater swiftness. Molasses, which one month cost $4 a gallon, sold the next for 65 cents. More than one cargo was thrown into the bay because prices would not pay for its unloading, and several of the muddiest streets from time to time were rendered passable by dumping into them barrels of unsaleable provisions and other commodities not often used as paving material. 
wages immediately after the first rush to the gold fields reached and maintained high levels ordinary labor brought from eight to ten dollars a day while mechanics and carpenters easily commanded twelve or sixteen restaurants and hotels charged what for that period were unheard of rates the cheapest and best eating places in the city were run by chinese proprietors who gave ample and well-cooked meals for a dollar each but american houses like the alhambra or delmonico's had nothing to offer for less than five the rooms at the more pretentious hotels like the ward the graham or the st francis brought as high as two hundred and fifty dollars a month and even a bunk in a tent or garret could be disposed of for ten dollars or twenty dollars a week rentals and real estate values were correspondingly high according to bayard taylor the parker house was leased for a hundred and ten thousand dollars annually a canvas tent fifteen by twenty-five occupied by gamblers who called it the eldorado brought forty thousand dollars a small broker's house known as the miners bank rented for seventy five thousand dollars a year a one-story building with a twenty-foot frontage on the plaza then known as portsmouth square brought forty thousand dollars and a cellar twelve feet square and six feet deep was offered for a law office at two hundred and fifty dollars a month any room twenty by sixty feet wrote sherman would rent for a thousand dollars a month even though the cost of labor was high and lumber brought from oregon or from the graham mills at santa cruz sold for five hundred dollars a thousand when such rentals could be obtained for buildings of every description the price of vacant property naturally mounted with skyrocket speed lots which only a few years earlier had gone begging at twelve dollars each now sold for as many thousand men bankrupt and unfortunate mercantile ventures suddenly found themselves rich through the possession of real estate previously considered worthless more than one citizen who had rushed off to the mines in eighteen forty eight and failed to make his fortune came back to san francisco to find his property so risen in value during his absence as to make him a wealthy man some of the shrewder argonauts of eighteen forty nine thus found their true eldorado in san francisco real estate which afforded early investors much surer and easier profits than the gold mines of the sierra in most cases at least up to eighteen fifty three when a decline in values began almost the only cloud on the investor's horizon was the validity of the title to go into the innumerable disputes over land claims which troubled early san francisco would crowd all other material from this volume yet though it cannot be written here the story of san francisco's real estate transactions has in it much beside technical details relating to land titles and lawsuits a large part of the story especially after eighteen fifty would deal with official corruption and public indifference a combination that has injured many another american municipality and in the case of san francisco cost her most of her patrimony and threw her early land titles into unfortunate confusion the subject is interesting also because it gave rise to some very clever attempted land frauds one of these was the so-called lemontour grant a claim brought forward in eighteen fifty three by jose lemontour of mexico before the california land commission to six hundred thousand acres of land in california 
Included in the claim were a number of islands and some four square leagues in the heart of San Francisco. The grants were signed by Governor Micheltorena, to whom Limontour had furnished aid in the early forties, and seemed, on their face, to be unmistakably genuine. So far at least as the San Francisco claims were concerned, they were upheld by the land commission. But after months of litigation, during which Lamontour collected over $300,000 from property holders for quiet title, the United States District Court adjudged them fraudulent and ordered Lamontour's arrest. The latter, after giving bond for $30,000, forfeited his bond and fled to Mexico. Another spurious claim to three square leagues in the San Francisco limits was also brought forward about the time of the Lamontour excitement and served still further to cloud the titles of property holders and cause a semi-panic. This was known as the Santian Grant, so called from the name of a priest, Jose Santian, who produced a grant to the property in question, purporting to have been signed by Governor Pio Pico in 1846. The claim was sold by Santian, and after passing into the hands of a company known as the Philadelphia Association, was approved by the Land Commission. Subsequent court proceedings, however, as in the case of the Lamontour scheme, invalidated the claim and declared the grant a forgery. Though the Lamontour and Santian claims were repudiated, the mere fact that frauds could be attempted on so large a scale and come so near of success showed plainly enough the uncertainty and confusion surrounding the land titles of early San Francisco. Even an act of the state legislature in 1851 recognizing the city's right to certain beach and water lots and confirming previous sales of such property failed to clear away the difficulties court decisions for a long time were too conflicting to furnish any basis of adjustment squatters disputed the rights of legitimate owners and for many years rival claimants settled the respective merits of their claims by resort to force as often as by appeal to law in addition to these private disputes over land titles, there was much juggling of the city's property by corrupt officials. All sorts of fraudulent practices were resorted to by which the municipality's valuable real estate, inherited from the old Spanish days or ceded to it by the government, was transferred to private individuals, many of whom thus became rich and infamous at the same time. So, through the first decade of San Francisco's history as an American municipality, along with all its splendid virility and optimism, ran the scandal of a city robbed of its heritage by conniving officials and unprincipled citizens. Whatever its government might be doing, however, year after year the city continued its surprising growth, and added to its wealth by leaps and bounds. Misfortunes, however, were not lacking to test the real mettle of the new community. Chief of these were the six great fires which, one after another, swept over the city in 18 months, beginning with December 1849. The total loss entailed by these fires, most of which were thought to be of incendiary origin, was close to $25 million, none of which was covered by insurance. But with the spirit of courage and determination that showed itself again to the admiration of the world after the great disaster of 1906, the citizens each time rebuilt their devastated city, making it more substantial and desirable after every catastrophe. 
The last of the six great fires started June 22, 1851, on the north side of Pacific near Powell, and destroyed, wholly or in part, some 16 blocks, causing a loss of over $3 million. This, and the previous conflagrations, changed completely the San Francisco of tents and flimsy structures which had sprung up in the first months of 1849. Docks, wharves, sewers, sidewalks, paved streets, commodious and fireproof business houses, attractive and substantial homes, took the place of the rude buildings and primitive structures of an earlier day. Business still continued to rely upon the mines for much of its prosperity, but a more widely diversified interest in shipping, lumber, agriculture, and other lines of productive activity promised a broader and more secure foundation for the city's future. Gold dust ceased to be the chief circulating medium, but gave place to $10 and $20 gold pieces privately coined and to the $50 slugs issued by the assay office in San Francisco. A motley list of silver coins drawn from almost every country under the sun served for small change and readily passed from hand to hand with only a rough attempt to fix approximate values. The smallest coin in use was a bit, or Spanish real, supposed to be equal to twelve and a half cents in American money. But as a matter of fact, nearly every small silver coin, whatever its face value, was classed as a bit and so accepted for the San Franciscan still refused to think in terms of nickels and cents. The year 1853 was marked by a feverish business activity and inflation of real estate values such as even the boom of 1849 had scarcely known. But in the midst of this hectic prosperity were signs of coming trouble. The mining industry, though still producing many millions annually, was not able to support the thousands of persons who had made it their livelihood in previous years. Consequently, men were coming back from the mountains in large numbers and seeking employment in other lines, or turning to other occupations, especially to agriculture, for a livelihood. This transition could not be accomplished without a considerable strain upon the machinery of business. Merchants found their sales curtailed, and ready money far more difficult to obtain. Goods had to be sold in the interior, largely on credit, and gold continued to flow out of the state to meet bills already contracted with eastern merchants. The season of 1854 was unusually dry, bringing ruin not only to many ranchers, but also seriously reducing mining operations through lack of water. This and other difficulties led to nearly 300 business failures in one year. In addition, there occurred the very serious defalcation of Henry Meigs, ex-councilman, public benefactor, and leading citizen of San Francisco, whose unpaid debts and fraudulent treasury warrants cost his creditors fully $800,000. In spite of these adverse factors, however, San Francisco experienced no actual crisis until the sudden collapse of several leading banking houses at the beginning of 1855. The crash happened shortly after the middle of February, when the firm of Page, Bacon & Company, probably the leading banking institution of California, became insolvent through the embarrassment of its parent company in St. Louis. This precipitated a run on the great banking and express house of Adams & Company, whose branch offices were in every mining center of California, 
and forced that institution to close its doors. At the time of this failure, Adams and Company owed nearly $2 million to depositors, and as there was then no national bankrupt law, the assets still on hand were successfully manipulated by means of receivers, attachments, and other legal devices to the great benefit of a few favored creditors and the complete disappointment of the rest. Litigation over the spoils lasted for seven years, but most of the depositors gained little or nothing from the proceedings. The law's failure to remedy the situation or punish those responsible for the disappearance of more than $200,000 of the company's assets aroused public opinion to the danger point and served as one of the contributing motives for the creation of the Vigilance Committee in 1856. The financial panic did not confine itself to the two firms already mentioned. Three other leading houses, including those of Wealth Fargo and Robinson and Company, closed their doors on the same day that Adams and Company announced its failure. A run was also started on the remaining banks of the city, but either through good fortune or wiser management, these were able to meet the demands of their excited depositors. These bank failures also forced many mercantile houses into bankruptcy, so that a general and very acute business depression followed the fat years of prosperity and speculation from 1849 to 1854. The activity and feverish energy which characterized the material development of San Francisco between 1849 and 1855 also showed itself in the social side of people's life. The amusements, or perhaps one should say forms of relaxation, were generally strenuous and most unconventional if judged by modern standards. They were of a nature, too, that inevitably fostered lawlessness where a community tolerated them too long, and in the end became the source of viciousness and evil of the worst sort. Though even from the beginning harmless pleasures were common enough, and year by year the better class of San Francisco turned with increasing eagerness to amusements of moral worth, patronizing concert, lecture, and drama with true liberality, establishing gardens and parks, and seeking in many ways to encourage culture and refinement. Yet the characteristic amusements of those early days were not of the uplifting type. Men found their chief delight in drinking, gambling, and association with loose women. The saloons and gambling houses, which stood open day and night, were indeed the recognized centers of the city's social life. Their furnishings were tawdry and vulgar, but of a kind to appeal to unrefined masculine taste, and provided an enticing contrast to the bare, cheerless rooms in which most of the people lived. Entertainment of various sorts was also supplied by most resorts, such as the Bella Union, the El Dorado, or the Veranda, to serve as an additional attraction to the crowds. To these features were added light, warmth, and the opportunity for companionship, and an atmosphere surcharged with excitement. Stronger than all, however, was the appeal of bar and gambling table. As was to be expected, women of an undesirable character began to make their appearance very early in San Francisco society. Many of these were first brought in from Mazatlan or similar West Coast Latin American cities, and others came from the seaports of Asia. Later, the underworld of Paris, London, and New York added to the stream, 
until the prostitute became a familiar figure on every San Francisco street. Here again, as in the other aspects of social life, the old restraints and conventionalities were cast utterly aside. Men of prominence and eminent standing in the community appeared openly in the company of these daughters of Rahab, without exciting unfavorable comment or even attracting much attention. Few condemned them because few thought evil of what they did. Old standards were temporarily abandoned. San Francisco had, for the time being, adopted a new code of ethics and behavior. In this society, with its lack of restraint and emphasis upon the individual, the maintenance of one's rights became largely a personal matter with which the commonplace law had little to do. As a matter of course, nearly every man went armed, choosing knife or revolver according to the individual taste. Disputes were settled on site or made the subject of formal duels. The 500-odd saloons with which the city was blessed by 1855 did not tend to a condition of quietness and peace, nor did the excitement bred in gambling houses or the influence of immoral women prove of much assistance in this regard. Homicide was too common to excite much comment, and as almost no attempt was made to enforce the law by regularly appointed officials, men almost ceased to take it into consideration. Principals in a quarrel were shot or stabbed to death, and bystanders who failed to get out of the way quickly enough were accidentally killed without society holding anyone responsible. The law could not keep pace with the hurried rush of life, so that each man became his own protector, and not infrequently another man's judge and executioner as well. Such conditions inevitably gave the vicious elements of society free reign for their activities, and there were enough of these lawless characters and to spare before the city had long outgrown its village state. A criminal community known as Sydney Town, in honor of the ex-Australian convicts who founded it, had sprung up between Broadway and Pacific near the waterfront, to which all manner of evil characters resorted. But this community, bad as it was, did not have a monopoly of the undesirables, for they were too numerous to be confined to any one quarter of the city. Like most criminal classes, that of San Francisco was very cosmopolitan in its makeup. The riffraff of Europe, Asia, and South America, which followed in the wake of the gold rush, were continually augmented by American rowdies from the eastern cities or scoundrels from the southern and western states. To these was added a steady stream of weak or desperate characters with whom life in California had dealt too hard. Failures from the mines, men who had lost fortune and self-respect through gambling or drink, and all the unpleasant by-products which California, interpocula, necessarily produced. Another factor in the creation of lawlessness was the lax administration of the municipal government. From the American occupation down to May 1, 1850, the city was governed, for the most part, under the primitive Mexican institutions of Alcalde and Ayuntamiento. During much of this period, there was considerable waste of public funds and something akin to chaos in municipal affairs. The status of the government in 1849 was thus described by one of the early alcaldes. Quote, at this time, we are without a dollar in the public treasury, and it is to be feared that the city is greatly in debt. 
you have neither an office for your magistrate nor any other public edifice you are without a single police officer or watchman and have not the means of confining a prisoner for an hour neither have you a place to shelter while living sick and unfortunate strangers who may be cast upon our shores or to bury them when dead public improvements are unknown in san francisco in short you are without a single requisite necessary for the promotion of prosperity for the protection of property or for the maintenance of order the change from mexican to american institutions brought about by the first city charter affected no permanent improvement in the city's government except for an occasional attempt at reform conditions in fact grew worse instead of better elections became a farce contractors and officials grew rich at public expense criminals caught red-handed were almost never convicted the whole machinery of law enforcement and the right of the city's inhabitants to be secure in their persons and property were surrendered to the worst elements of the population lawyers politicians shrewd businessmen with much to gain from the control of city government furnished the leadership for this evil domination and under them were petty grafters lawless bullies and criminals of every kind so long as the city remained under such control it was utterly impossible to bring men to justice in the ordinary courts of law the statement of a recent author that between eighteen forty nine and eighteen fifty six one thousand murders were committed with only a single legal conviction will scarcely be challenged by those conversant with the times yet it is obvious that a community essentially anglo-saxon will not tolerate such conditions beyond a certain point the first outburst of public opinion which amounted to something more than talk came in july eighteen forty nine and resulted in the overthrow of a lawless group known as the hounds or regulators a semi-political organization whose activities bore an indistinguishable resemblance to robbery especially when applied to inoffensive foreigners a particularly brutal attack one sunday afternoon upon the settlement known as little chile led the better element of san francisco to unite for the suppression of the organization the leaders of the hounds were accordingly seized tried by a citizen's court and driven from the community the rest of the gang never again attempted to reorganize it was not until eighteen fifty one however that the first of the actual vigilance committees came into being lawlessness had been on the increase for months expressing itself not only in robbery and murder but also or so at least it was suspected in starting the great fires which swept the city from time to time arrests of even the most notorious criminals were seldom made and never accompanied by conviction at last with a sound common sense that placed the welfare of society above the sanctity of unenforced law some two hundred of the best citizens effected an organization known as the committee of vigilance to rid the city of the criminals and assist in the enforcement of the law sam brannan former leader of a mormon contingent that came to california in the ship brooklyn was elected president and isaac Bluxom jr secretary of the organization a few of the many other influential members were william t coleman james king of william selen and frederick woodworth and colonel j d stevenson of the new york volunteers 
a constitution was adopted on june ninth and the vigilance committee entered upon its difficult and dangerous task it should be borne in mind that this committee even though self-constituted was not a mob but a carefully organized body of respectable men who openly avowed responsibility for what they did and acted only after careful investigation of each case until its work was accomplished some of the committee constantly remained on duty the rest could be summoned at any time day or night by the tolling of the monumental engine company's bell beginning with the execution of john jenkins an australian ex-convict of evil notoriety who was caught while attempting a daylight robbery the committee continued its careful methodical work making arrests with its own police holding trials under an established procedure placarding the city with warnings for the criminal classes to leave and watching incoming ships to prevent the landing of desperate characters until for a time at least san francisco could boast a law-abiding population in this first purification of the body politic ninety-one persons were taken into custody of these quote, the committee hanged four whipped one deported fourteen under direct supervision ordered fourteen more to leave california at their own expense delivered fifteen to the authorities for legal trial and discharged forty-one the good accomplished by the first vigilance committee could be made permanent however only by continued interest in the city's welfare on the part of its better citizens this unfortunately was not forthcoming for like too many reform movements that of eighteen fifty one was merely a spasmodic outburst of indignation instead of a sustained effort at civic improvement so almost as soon as conditions became endurable the good people of san francisco turned again to their own affairs and the city's control slipped back into the hands of evil men lawlessness once more became the order of the day the criminal class augmented by the hard times of eighteen fifty four and fifty five began a reign of robbery and murder such as the community had not known even in the worst days of eighteen fifty one more than ever the law was made a mockery by corrupt or inefficient officials and dishonest lawyers and thoughtful men despaired of finding in it any relief from the conditions with which they found themselves surrounded the vicious circle was rendered complete by a union of wealth and respectability in the person of certain business and financial leaders who needed to control municipal elections and the city's treasury with the rowdy element altogether therefore the state of san francisco in eighteen fifty six was worse than in eighteen fifty one and drastic measures were again required to bring about a restoration of law and order public opinion was quickened to this new task by the death of james king of william this man's character like his name had about it a certain individuality that set him apart from his companions and near the close of his career especially made him a sort of gadfly in san francisco to arouse the city from its moral apathy john randolph of roanoke occupied a place no more unique in the senate of the united states than James King of William held in the San Francisco of the middle fifties. King began his California career in the Sierra. Afterwards, he came to San Francisco, where he established a private bank and later entered the employ of Adams and Company. The failure of this house thrust him into the editorial profession 
and October 8, 1855, he issued the first number of the Daily Evening Bulletin. Almost immediately, this paper set the city by the ears, with a directness which must have delighted the heart of a society still very much in the pioneer stage, King attacked those whom he considered guilty of corrupting the city's morals or of defrauding the people through political power. He dealt in personalities rather than in general charges and published the names of offenders with a boldness that made the victims of graft and crooked politics rejoice and take heart. Palmer, Cook and Company, whom he called the Uriah Heaps of San Francisco Bankers, and many other epithets no less complimentary, furnished King his first target. But his tastes were Catholic, and evildoers, great and small, soon took their places in the bulletin's gallery of rogues besides the arch-enemies to all good society, Palmer, Cook and Company. King's attacks did not, of course, immediately dethrone vice, but he gradually taught the people where the sources of corruption lay and steadily developed a strong undercurrent of public opinion against the prevailing abuses. The shooting of William Richardson, a United States Marshal by a notorious gambler named Charles Cora, who escaped the consequences of his act through a split jury, nearly precipitated a mob uprising in the early part of 1856. Cora was known to have killed at least six men besides Richardson. But it was not until the following May that the cold-blooded murder of James King himself by a detestable politician named Casey brought back the old vigilante days of 1851 and restored to the city its self-respect. King was shot about five o'clock on the evening of May 14th as he was walking homeward from the office of the bulletin. Casey immediately gave himself up to his friends at the police station, where he thought he would be secure. But the tolling of the old monumental fire bell brought together so great a crowd that the assassin's confederates thought it best to move him to the county jail for safekeeping. Here, protected by a large force of armed deputies and a considerable body of militia, he was temporarily safe. But the city was aroused to too high a pitch to quiet down. Matters, indeed, had come to such a pass that, as Dempster, one of the advocates of a new vigilance committee, truly said in his appeal to a better class of citizens, quote, we must either have vigilance with order or a mob with anarchy, unquote. Members of the Committee of 1851, led by one of its active members, W.T. Coleman, served as a nucleus for the new organization. The old Know-Nothing Hall at 105 and a half Sacramento Street was used as temporary headquarters, and notices in the newspapers announced the reassembling of the committee. Before nightfall, a thorough, swiftly working organization had been perfected. Hundreds of persons had been enrolled, sworn to an oath of secrecy, and given a number by which they were henceforth to be designated instead of by name. Arms were later provided in sufficient number to equip some 2,000 men. The volunteers were organized into regular military companies, each with its own officers, but the actual direction of affairs rested with a central executive committee of 33 members. The purpose of the organization can best be expressed in the committee's language. Quote, we do bind ourselves, read their declaration, to perform every just and lawful act for the maintenance of law and order, and to sustain the laws when faithfully and properly administered. But we are determined that no thief, 
burglar assassin ballot stuffer or other disturber of the peace shall escape punishment either by quibbles of the law the carelessness or the corruption of the police or a laxity of those who pretend to administer justice to sum up in a single sentence one of the most dramatic periods of all san francisco's stirring career one may simply say that the vigilantes of eighteen fifty six succeeded in carrying out the foregoing resolution upon the day of james king's funeral after a fair though non-technical trial they hanged casey and cora from the windows of the headquarters building and later executed two other rascals of similar kidney their chief work however lay in clearing the city of undesirables both prominent and obscure by means of warnings and deportations and in putting the fear of god into the hearts of the lawless characters who remained the process of regeneration was not accepted in the spirit of meekness by the victims nor wholly unopposed by the regularly constituted authorities a counter-movement headed by so-called law and order men sought and secured the aid of governor j neely johnson and the state militia against the vigilantes and even the president of the united states was requested to use federal troops to put down the insurrection w t sherman of later civil war fame was then engaged in banking in san francisco and for a time led the anti-vigilante party associated with him were general volney howard judge terry of the state supreme court who afterwards nearly forfeited his own neck by stabbing a member of the committee named hopkins and a number of other citizens equally well known twice at least civil war seemed inevitable between the state authorities backed by the law and order party and the vigilant supporters but fortunately this catastrophe was averted the city however for some months was like an armed camp the vigilantes had fully nine thousand members all of whom were regularly drilled and organized into infantry cavalry and artillery units the committee's permanent headquarters on sansom street in expectation of a siege had been turned into a well-defended fort known as fort gunnybags from the sacks of earth with which it was protected some thirty cannon ranging from six to thirty-two pounders were in the hands of the organization besides large stores of ammunition and thousands of muskets under such circumstances suppression of the movement whether by state or federal troops would have been a very bloody and costly business and luckily it was not attempted by a singular coincidence the committee of eighteen fifty six hanged the exact number of criminals that the committee of eighteen fifty one had hanged Quote, but the committee did not stop there says mary floyd williams it laid its hands upon an incriminating ballot box that was still stuffed with forged ballots it obtained confessions from the ward healers who had done the bidding of the powerful and efficient bosses and then it announced its intention of cleansing the city from the plague of political corruption it sent into exile over a score of the most valuable members of the machine fortunately as soon as the work in hand was done the leaders of the committee disbanded its followers even though the organization was then at the height of its power and thus saved the movement from becoming the tool of men eager to use it for selfish or partisan ends those who created it had shouldered a grave responsibility and taken a great risk 
only the utter demoralization of government and social conditions could have justified such a step but for many years thereafter the salutary influence of the committee's work was felt in the city's political and social life and few today will deny that san francisco profited from this overriding of law to save law end of chapter twenty